Welcome to episode three of Lil Muck, a tiny slice of the Muck podcast where we talk to people in the media about their favorite political true crime story. I'm Tina Jaramillo. And I'm Hillary Doherty. Hillary, tell us about today's guest. Oh, I'm so excited. We are joined today by independent digital journalist Peg McNichol, who has worked with several newspapers, including the Holland Sentinel and the Southeast Missourian. Also, she is with the AM FM radio station WHTC Radio in Holland, Michigan, a station that she just told us has been around for 71 years. That's amazing. I love it. Welcome, Peg. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. I'm so glad that you're here. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about um, you know, why journalism for you and, 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 uh, why you made that decision. That's a, which is important, right? We need journalism. We need reporters <laughs> so much right now. The short version, which I can hardly ever do a short thing, but, <laughs> um, I, I'm the fifth of 10 kids. So I was always the person who felt like I had to keep track of information. All the people <laughs> in my family are information nerds. We are. Wow. And, um, I started writing before I knew how to write. I would like scribble things on pages and hand it to my mom and say, read it back to me because I couldn't read. And oh. then she would start, <laughs> she would start reading things back to me and I'd be like, that's not the story. <laughs> so, and I had a wonderful fourth grade teacher who encouraged me to write. And, um, my brother took something I had written and gave it to our elementary school newspaper. And I was so angry with him, but also hooked. You know, because yeah. people were like, I, I saw your stupid thing in the paper. <laughs> oh, I love and, this. Yeah. So then I was in my seventh grade paper, eighth grade. They were all tiny things. I remember my big, big story in eighth grade was interviewing the principal who had just returned to work after having a heart attack. So, you know, wow. we didn't really, we didn't have a high school paper. There was no high school paper, but I had a great journalism teacher. There was a journalism class. And, uh, and then I thought I was going to go off to school for, you know, four years and whip through a degree and it, instead life happened and I had kids and I got married and I got divorced and a bunch of things happened. And in between, I kept taking college classes. So 26 years later, I had a journalism degree, Oh my God, it's amazing. two kids, two, amazing. Yeah, two yes. kids, and I had been working in journalism, you know, the wow. whole time. Wow. Well, not the whole time. I took a seven year stint where I worked in, uh, in corporate communications for healthcare. So kind of in and out of journalism. Mm -hmm. And I went to a trade school for broadcasting. So I went to Specs Howard, which is a big trade school in Metro Detroit. So that's, and then I've just worked figuring out either independent as a freelancer and that's my dog, sorry. <laughs> and so again, long story longer in my case, a couple years ago, the Missouri, the uh, WHCC, which, I worked temp for like as a afternoon part-time anchor a few years ago. They had an opening in the morning and invited me to apply. And I've been doing that for a little over two years now. That's oh. amazing. I love the stories of working moms, you know, yes. working moms are like the heartbeat of this country, in my opinion, yes. <laughs> you know, so that's amazing. Yeah, there, there were stories where my kids ended up going with me and they didn't love journalism for that reason. But I like to think that they're a little more informed. And I used to take my daughter when she was, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. If I had an afternoon journalism class and couldn't arrange daycare, she came with me and she just did her homework or she'd listen. And um, so my kids are both very aware. She became um she got a degree in political science. Oh, oh awesome. amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So in four years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's hard. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask, with everything going on right now, especially with uh, CNN journalist Omar Jimenez's arrest, what do you think uh, the role of journalism plays in social justice? I think the role of journalism is always to defend the truth, protect and defend the truth at all, at any and all costs. Our job is to tell the truth. And that the truth is sometimes we have to talk about social justice and sometimes what we believe our country to be, the aim and goal of the U.S. Constitution isn't being played out at other levels of governance. And we have to address that because we are basic loyalty is to the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. And it is the underpinning of our nation. And the Constitution, when you read through it, is, is all about equality and justice. Even though it may not have been perpetrated through, through the years the same way that we would maybe have envisioned it if we were the ones reading it or writing it back in the day, right? So it, journalism is the voice of the people. And it's, we amplify what goes on in a community and highlight specific things, I believe, so that people have a context for the, their daily lives. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's a comfortable context. Mm. If, I don't know if that sounds super a- academic, but that's how I, I feel very strongly about the job of journalism is to tell the truth the, to the best of our ability. Is it frustrating to see certain news channels or even reporters or newspapers that are not doing that? Like, you know, there's a lot of news channels and stories that you see where these things just aren't fact and they're more opinion and it's so dangerous. Does that, does that bother you? It bothers me a lot because when you hear people saying things like, I bet fill in the blank politician wanted this to happen or wants this to happen or believes this or feels this, everything from, I believe President Trump is lying about, and he really wants this because you can't prove that unless you can find factually that he said one thing when the record says something else. And there have been thousands of instances, I think, at this point of that. Daniel Dale does an exceptional job, and he has a team of fact checkers who can show when the president isn't telling the truth. But, you know, that goes all the way along to your, again, county, city, local representative. We can't, we don't know what's in the heart and mind of people, but if they make statements that do not meet with what the record says or the truth of the matter is. We can report that, but we can't report Hillary felt such and such a thing. And I'm talking about you, Hillary. Tina felt, Tina, Tina intended such and such a thing. And I've, I've on Twitter, I will call that out. Um, Mm -hmm. when people say whether it's Governor Gretchen Whitmer, what she really wants to do, we don't know what she wants to do, right? We have to, we have to rely on what is on the record. What can we prove? Right. And that's not, that's not by talking to one of our friends saying, I feel. <laughs> right. And we, right. Uh, just to extrapolate on this and get it, make it more personal, we had a caller probably six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. I get called, we, we have a talk show portion of our program and then I do newscasts, but I jump into the program from time to time. And someone called up and, 
they'll periodically say they don't think I'm a very good journalist or that I don't tell the truth or that I mm. twist the news. That's that's not uncommon in this day and age. Right. And in right. fact, if you look at history, it's never been uncommon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people, when people don't like what they hear, they say that it's not true. So a lady called our station and she said um, she felt that the news was being twisted, et cetera. So whatever the particular issue was, she felt the news was, um, was planted. Mm-hmm. And we had this little back and forth where I said, well, feelings aren't facts. It's everything we report, you can, you can find sources for. Right. We right. don't, there may be people who make things up and they usually get caught, but we, we kind of had this back and forth. She said, well, I feel that. And I kept telling her feelings aren't facts. Right. And that's really, that's the difference is when you may feel you don't like the president or the Democratic governor of my state or the nonpartisan members of our city council, you may feel that they are doing one thing or another, but you have to look at the record. Right. You have to look at what is provable and, and make a determination. You may not like it, and that may mean you don't vote for those people, but you, if you're basing it on feelings, you don't know if what you feel is accurate unless you check it. Okay, so that's my long thing about no but it's so true (laughs) and it's so funny because so this is our third lil muck i love saying lil Mm -hmm. lil my favorite (laughs) um but so we talked to two south florida journalists you're our first journalist that's out of the state of florida because we're in south florida but um i the times the moments in those conversations where i was surprised is when they talked about how they personally felt like this story led to this per the story i did i investigated i wrote i put the facts in not my feelings right um led to this person either going to jail or being taken down, like taken out of office or whatever, and how they had mixed feelings about it because, hey, I, I liked this guy personally. He seemed like a nice guy, but he's doing these things wrong. I am, I love journalism. Like I would love yes. to be able to be a reporter, but I have so many feelings about <laughs> it. Like I don't know <laughs> if I'd be able to make that separation. Separate that. It's yeah. such an important, but I think when you're in school, right? Like there's rules to being a journalist. There's rules to be doing this and, and staying on the up and up. And I think people forget that um, when they read these stories, like what she's saying about feelings, like you're saying, well, no, it's very black and white, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and the thing of it is, the truth isn't always black and white. The truth can be very muddy, as happened in the stories that I covered in Southeast Missouri, and as happens almost every day. We report what we're able to prove and find out about, and we're not perfect. I mean, I had a correction this week. I One thing that I do, because I believe transparency and journalism literacy is so important, if I make a mistake, I it at the top of the newscast and I try to hit every newscast where I've done that story I I started out by saying we start with a correction we open with a correction I reported I inaccurately reported about the such and such a situation because you never want to repeat the error in your correction you want to let people know it was the right. story about Hillary and Tina and and I misreported their location for instance Right, right. Their actual lo- their actual location is such and such. And so I do that. And I also, on the stories we post to web, I put an editor's note at the very top. And a lot of people put it at the bottom. And some reporters, new reporters, often are so mortified. They'll <laughs> sneak into the web and kind of change a word or two here, or change Ooh, the spelling yeah. of a name, because they're embarrassed and they're right. scared, right? So that what they don't understand and what, what you learn 
if you're lucky and you've got good editors and, and, and you have ethics is you learn that the more transparent you are about your frailties, the better yeah, credibility the more you have. The more trust, yeah, you gain. Right. So I had a right. question um, going back to what you were talking about in terms of, um, you know, that, that trust and, and reporting. Do you think the news, and I'm, I'm thinking right now of the riots and the protests that are happening, do you think that the news mm-hmm. has been focusing too much on sensationalizing the riots rather than focusing on um, examples of peaceful protests that are happening? I don't think you can separate those. And that's mm. the problem. You know, Martin Luther King said that basically I'm paraphrasing here. He said it better than I am about to, that the riots are the voice of the people who are unheard. I mean, and, and I've been watching this coverage. Holland is a small town. There was a, a demonstration yesterday that was peaceful along our, Famous, it's not famous, but Centennial Park is like this big town square where a lot of traffic goes by. And so they they lined both sides of those roads, our city halls across the street, and they just carried signs. And that's the place people protest here. When Betsy DeVos was nominated for education secretary, about a thousand people showed up and just walked around the block in this, like it's a two square uh, block green space. And they just, that's what they did for several hours in the dead of winter. It was freezing out there. So, wow. um, so whenever there's a protest, whether it's Tea Party, and yes, we had Tea Party people here. Now they're called the Ottawa Patriots. Mm. Um, they demonstrate out there. So that's like the big visible place. Um, there was another demonstration planned for this afternoon, and they've now put it off. So part of the reason they put it off is because in Grand Rapids, which is 30 miles to the east of us, it's the second largest city in the state massive amounts of damage happened yesterday, last wow. night. And in fact, a guy I used to work with was in the middle of it reporting on it. And uh, they broke windows in the Secretary of State's building. Mm-hmm. I got a message saying that a bar was pretty much destroyed and looted. Now, are those people who are expressing the voice of the oppressed or are those people who are trying to start a race war so they're infiltrating these gangs? Mm-hmm. I'm seeing mixed reports on that and there are in you saw in minnesota i'm sure you guys saw the video of the white guy dressed like you could just see his eyes Mm -hmm. and he had like the the, uh, face mask on and gloves and everything and he was walking through busting up windows and that from all accounts that i've read that was not someone who was protesting with people right that was someone who was creating a sensation that needs to be reported now it, initially, they said it was a police officer. Police came right out and said, no, that was not this person. They were at this other location. There are probably still people out there saying a police officer started that, right? Right, right. And that's, mm. the, that's the downside of misinformation in this era when something can go viral in a matter of literal minutes. It's so crazy, and it's it's. It, I'm going to a protest this afternoon, actually, in, <laughs> in, in Broward County, and so... Uh, I think it's important for people to show up. I just, uh, I, I agree with you. I, I think that you're right. When Martin Luther King said that, he was saying like, this is what happens when we're not having these conversations and there's no action really happening, you know? Um, right. Now, just if I can tell you, we've got a couple pastors here. Holland is predominantly historically for like a couple hundred years, 150 years. Um, Dutch American. There are still people here who speak Dutch. There are still people. Uh, our, one of our former state reps, Pete Hoekstra, who's now an ambassador to the Netherlands, 
um, was born in the Netherlands, right? And a lot of their families came over in the 50s. But we also have a 30 to 35% of our population are Latino because we are the fruit basket of the Midwest, all the way up the West Coast of Michigan, where I live. All these folks have come up from, I've met people from Uruguay who've traveled to the United States for whatever reason, and they're, you know, first generation, right? And then we yeah. have four generation, four generation Latino families here. We also have black families here, a smaller um, statistical part of our population. But you know what? We had an arrest two years ago. In fact, uh, I think it was the first weekend of tulip time where police were, a guy had held a gun to the head of a woman who was holding a baby. It was a domestic. And he mm-hmm. took off and he had three people in his car. When the police pulled them over, it was in the parking lot of a church here, uh, a reformed church. And the pastor there is a black woman and her husband is a, works at the seminary, worked at the seminary and also works at the church. And she was working on her sermon and she sees this like eight police cruisers and this little car converge in her parking lot. That's where the traffic stop was. And they, they hauled the people out of the car. And one of those people was her nephew. He was not the suspect police were seeking, but the response was fraught. So uh, she was standing there filming this traffic stop and then you hear her see it's her nephew mm-hmm. who by the way lived with her she was his guardian oh. so she sees police with their rifles drawn this is a tiny town where our population is like thirty-two thousand people so pretty much everybody knows everyone sorry i have to step out of here for a second pretty much everybody knows i can't say everybody knows everybody but people it's a small town. We know who the police officers are. And she's seeing people she knows uh, with guns, shotguns drawn on her nephew who's face down on the ground. They're handcuffing him. And My God. she's trying to figure out why they would do this. Now, there was a series of meetings that happened after that between members of the congregation of that church and local leaders and police. So they could kind of reconcile, okay, how can we do better next time? What happened? Let us understand And some of it was a standard response when a guy has held a gun to the head of a woman holding a baby. You know, you don't know who's in that car, right? Right. So how do do you respond? And they pretty much had the entire shift of police officers out there. Wow. So, but there's a lot of pain on the other side of the community for exactly the reason people are demonstrating now. Right. Um, Okay. So why don't, do you have one story that you've worked on that was, unelected or uh, that you would love to share with us? Yes. I have always wanted to talk to somebody about this just because it was such a weird story. I sent you guys some background. So I, when I was in Southeast Missouri as a city county reporter, I was covering these road issues. Now, road paving is like the nerdiest subject, (laughs) right? (laughs) But while I was down there, part of the issue is, This Cape Girardeau County, uh, we were in the city of Cape Girardeau, which is, by the way, Rush Limbaugh's hometown. Um, The county itself was had about 80,000 people in it, and it was a big mix of rural, uh, suburban, and urban. But there were a lot of rural areas where there were unpaved roads, and it's an issue in a place that gets a lot of rain. We're right next to the Mississippi River. So they want to pave these roads and move the county forward. It's a safety issue. It's a, you know, quality of life issue, all these things. 
And there had been a lot of fighting with the, with the road commission and the road advisory board because there had been for a long time people could pay. So, for instance, Hillary, if you wanted your road paved, you would say, well, I'm going to put down $15,000 or $10,000 or whatever. Hmm. So my road gets paved faster. It's not a, not a bribe or anything. It's just you would share the cost of the ah. public paving. Okay. Right? So it wasn't illegal. It wasn't illegal. It was just like what they would call now a, a public-private partnership. Okay? okay. Well, if you don't have the money to get your road paved and you need it paved, right. you're at the bottom of the list. Yeah. So there were a lot of angry conversations about this. And they they reset, uh, gave a, the road commission a new uh, chairman. And this is an unpaid commission. And they're trying to find a more equitable way to get these roads paved. So I'm immersed in this. And I'm, like, covering what kind of asphalt that they're putting down on a certain road and how they do the bids. It's really, really dry stuff, unless you're a nerd reporter like me. I love this stuff, right? <laughs> this is like this is like a really good basketball game. How are we going to fund it? Who gets the contract? How is it right. bid? How, how, how many miles of road can you pave, right? Sometimes it's five miles. Sometimes it's two. How quickly can you get the contract slot? In the middle of this, and, and there was a big fight about it. In the middle of this, there was this farmer, Lawrence McBride, who was being pressured by county officials to sign a road easement. And for those of you who don't know what an easement is, it's this section of your road where utilities go through, where you have like the ditches for the roads and things like that, right? right? And he was supposed to sign an easement so they could widen and pave the road going by his cattle farm. And he didn't want to do it. Mm. And there were some historical reasons for that. One of them was he had signed an easement many years earlier because he was told he was the last signature they needed to pave this road. And then he found out he wasn't. So he got mad. And And years later, when they had to redo all these easements, he refused. So they kept pressing him and pressing him and pressing him on it. And what they ended up doing, and I spent, this is the long story of it, right? So they ended up finding a 1971 voters registration and taking another road easement that he had signed for a utility, I believe it was a utility company. And they basically reinvented and created their own approved easement from him without his knowledge. They used the signature from the voter card? Yes, from 1971. Holy cow! That's yeah, that's the net. So this is what they call, we call this a six-year easement. And I have to tell you, while all of this was going on, there was some other stuff going on that we were completely unaware of. And so there was this brand new county commissioner who was mad as hell, and there were only three commissioners in the county. Two had been on for decades, and this other guy who had just been elected in his first term, and he was mad about these roads, and particularly this farmer. And so he was pressing us to do the story and it was a good story. Um, I spent weeks on it. Well, he was going to have a confrontation with city, with the other commissioners as they were going into a closed session. Now you can go into a closed session in most states for um, legal reasons, personnel reasons, or real estate. Okay. So we think it's this road situation. That's why they're going into a closed session. And we, my my boss and I, and we think that there's going to be a big fight about uh, Mr. McBride's easement and road paving. And so they sent a photographer, uh, videographer, this is back in <laughs> 2008, right? Yeah. 
I had a flip camera, but we needed real good quality. So, <laughs> so we, we do the meeting and there's some back and forth and they're going to go into this closed session and it's taking a really long time. And, and by the way, the county attorney is there as well, the prosecuting attorney. So we're trying to, we're waiting for them to make a statement saying something about this road easement. And the, I think it was the prosecutor who said, you're going to want to stick around for this closed session because we'll probably have an announcement after. Hmm. So I, I'm on the phone to Bob. Hey, I'm not going to be back for I don't know how long. There's this closed session. Da, da, da. And he goes, well, let me see Bob, my boss, Bob Miller, who's a fantastic guy and a great journalist. He <laughs> said, let me call one of my sources over there. He was going to call the county auditor. And this was a guy who had um, been in government for a real long time. He'd been a long time city councilman at Jackson, which was a smaller town near Cape Girardeau. So he calls him up and they're like, oh, he just left to go into this closed session. Well, now why would he be in there? The auditor, so now yeah. we're, so now I'm sticking around. And then the prosecuting attorney comes out and says, there's no announcement. So within mm. here, I'm, I'm thinking sometimes you're looking at the wrong thing because you don't know about what else you're looking at. And, and to summarize, what had happened was during that closed session, they called the county auditor, David Ludwig, into the session to confront him because a year earlier, unbeknownst to anyone, he had signed a letter admitting that he'd been sexually harassing the two women who worked in his office, inside his office. And this was a, not a big office. The desks were, there were three desks in there. And, you know, you could, there were three or four feet between the desks, but there yeah. were three desks. And so, so in this confrontation, what nobody knew inside this closed meeting was that the young commissioner, the new guy, Jay Purcell, was so mad about the road stuff, he got a digital recorder and it was in his pocket and it was on. Oh, uh, I love anything secret. Yeah. Secret taping, secret letters, <laughs> secret videos. Oh my God. It's my favorite thing. So he captured the confrontation. First of all, he was completely unaware of this. Oh, yeah, he's going so, in thinking uh, roads, and now there's a much larger yeah. issue. And so Mr. Ludwig walks in and starts begging to keep his job. The George Gerald Jones, who's the presiding commissioner, basically the boss of the two other commissioners, or the you know the well the, the leader, he says, "You signed this letter in 2007, and yeah, 2007, saying you'd resign if we ever caught you doing it again. Now we caught you doing it again." You got to go. And he's like, no, my computer got hacked. No, it was oh a virus. Oh, my God. Okay. I love it, that. It, oh. was a it was a mistake. It's I clicked virus, on something. Please. Yeah. I clicked on something and I couldn't get out of it. Well, he didn't go to the IT people for a year about it. So this Jay Purcell tells me that he's got this recording. And then this became this kind of race to try and get the recording from him. And he was as you can imagine, pretty stressed out. It's against the law to record mm. to record a secret. It's, it's against the law to record a closed meeting without permission of all present. Right. So he broke the law. So how do, how do the sunshine laws fit in with that, though? Well, because it was a closed meeting, so he violated the Open Meetings Act because he re illegally recorded a closed meeting. Yeah. Um, the second thing is. David Ludwig was an elected official, and you cannot have a personnel 
issue with an elected official in a in a closed meeting because they're elected, so it has to be public. Right, it has to be open, right? Right. But the commission made the mistake of privately confronting him the year earlier and making him sign a letter that was never disclosed to the public. In fact, oh, wasn't. Like, I was going to say. I mean, they just say, "Hey, just don't do it again," and it's okay. That was it. Well, it was if you do it again. The, the 2007 letter said he would resign if he got caught doing it again. And so this 2008 confrontation was, it's time to go. Wow. But the public was not made aware in 2007 that, that he had been engaged in this behavior as an Correct. elected official. And as oh. harassment goes, by the way, it, as we later found out, on a scale of 1 to 10, it was 2, at, you know, in terms of severity. He was printing, he was looking at, at things on the internet that, one of his two assistants could see, and um, she found this very offensive. It was like Pam Anderson jumping nude out of a birthday cake for Hugh Hefner. Well, or Hugh Hefner, oh, somebody. He, but why is he doing that at work? He's a pig. Well, exact, <laughs> exactly. He violated. This is this is kind of funny. He violated the computer use policy. The county had. The, the county did not have a sex harassment policy, but. They had to make one after all these stories started coming out. So first we found out that there were two recordings. There was this one of the closed meeting, and there was also a three-plus-hour-long conversation as two of the commissioners rode from Cape Girardeau County to Jefferson City, which is the capital city, for the annual Missouri County Association, every year they have a conference and they do training, some of which is required to get your county pay if you're a county elected official, and some of which is just, you know, helpful stuff, learning about, you know, road easements and paving. And there's a lot of folks who want government contracts there, so they rent hotel rooms. I went the following year, I went to this to see what goes on there, and uh, it's very interesting. There was a lot of drinking going on in yeah, some cases in say, some of those rooms. A lot of after hours fun times happening, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Including one where a girl rushed out of a hotel room with holding her hands to her bottom and she sat down in a an open ice chest. <gasps> what in the heck? Well, I don't know whatever happened exactly. <laughs> I had some ideas because I was about to go in that room and someone said, Oh, let me talk to you about this incident that happened in our county, blah, blah, blah. Because I had been, at that point, in fact, at that point, I had been covering these sunshine issues. So this was, I believe, 2009. I did track wow. that that young lady and another one had worked at a place in Columbia, which is near Jefferson City, and they were hired to do bar service or something down there. Um, I never, I got a story that we couldn't publish out of that. But basically mm. about, um, I, I don't know what happened in that room. I really don't. Oh but I, I think it involved a paddle, but I don't know. Yeah. So it sounds like it. I mean, the fact that this county had no sexual harassment policy and their idea of like a policy is to just sign a letter, like instead of putting together something that so this behavior stops and making sure it doesn't happen in another department. They, you know, it's like it's so behind the times. It's so late in the to be even doing something like this. How come that policy didn't exist in the first place? Well, one of it is one reason is because much like what you're seeing with race right now and, and even the Me Too movement, that hadn't happened. So I don't know how old you guys are, but I'm 62. And I remember when you just didn't talk about if you did raise the issue of your boss saying something or a colleague saying something or doing something inappropriate, 
you were just brushed off, right? That was just like, oh, boys will be boys, right? We talk about this all the time on the podcast, all the time. Yeah, so there was that kind of attitude. So so this was this huge, David was very well liked. He was a genial guy, uh, member of the NRA. And that was one of the concerns uh, Gerald Jones had was, and this is in one of the recordings, he says, I don't, he wins every gun contest we have. I don't know how many guns he has. So they had to up security. Two things happened when they confronted him and he immediately went on sick leave for months. And while he was on sick leave, initially he talked to me, then he got a lawyer, his lawyer talked to me and he said it was just, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing again because he used very colorful language, but Al Lowe's was his name. And he basically said this was much ado about nothing. And, Mm -hmm. but then I got the two women in, in Mr. Ludwig's office to talk to me. And it turned out one had been there, Virgie had been there for like 30 years or something. And she was so stressed out about his behavior because he was fairly new in that position. It was his first or second term. And then the other position had changed, like had been the same person for years and years. And all of a sudden they went through three or four people real quickly. And that's Mm. usually a sign of something not being right in an office is when you you see that kind of turnover. So then the two women, Robin and Virgie, talked to me about what was going on and how they hadn't said anything for a long time, but we got a new clerk of the county, um, Kara. Oh, I wish I could remember her last name. I'm blanking on it. But when Kara came in as county clerk, the women felt that another woman would hear them. And so, and she did. So, Isn't but that none amazing. Of, yeah, Isn't that yeah, amazing. Yeah. Wow. So none of that was made public until this road easement thing blew into this closed meeting and this confrontation and eventually the, t- the recordings came out and then there was a huge scandal. Um, he went on leave for three months. Um, the county prosecutor and the attorney for David Ludwig showed up in the auditor's office and confronted the two women and said, why can't you just let bygones be bygones? He's sorry for what happened. And oh, okay. that, that became a story. <laughs> and then, then the public kind of had a lot of feelings about it um, because they liked David. He was a good supporter of the arts and he was well liked. He had, you know, been in politics for years and years. Um, but then there were other people who felt like, oh, this is another good old boy, whatever. Yeah. And so in the PDF I sent you, you can see the comments. That's one thing I did when I copied these stories for my records is you can see the comments and the reaction the public had that at those time, in those times you, it was a pretty robust comment section and I would get involved too. I would answer people. Yeah. And there's, I look through, you know, a couple and there were some comments that were saying, you know, completely, um, that, that it was unethical and that the taping is wrong and, and, and things like that. And then on uh, the other end of people saying um, that they thought that he, he had to record the meeting. So it's just interesting. I just, here's the thing. The thing that bothers me the most is like that these men don't know that that behavior is inappropriate in their office. Like that, the fact that you, that they have to be told that they don't know that watching Pam Anderson jump out of a birthday cake naked or whatever, <laughs> they don't know that that's inappropriate to watch in an office. And so instead of like these women actually saying something, why is it on us or somebody else to point out that that's, how come you don't know that? 
You know, like, how do you not know you're making people uncomfortable in, in your office? It's, it's just, oh, the, this wildest mindset. And we just did, I just covered Gary Hart, which will come out in a few weeks. Um, oh, but boy. It was the same th- yeah, yeah, but it's like the same thing where it's like, well, he's a really good candidate. So, okay, he runs around on his wife. Like, there's these things that we excuse away. But what about the character of this person? You know, <laughs> what about that part? It's just so bizarre to me that. It's usually the men. They have to be told that like, you really shouldn't be doing this, you know? But, but you know, it goes on all sides. I mean, there yes. was a Detroit congresswoman who had a traffic stop, and she did violate the traffic law, but her response was basically, don't you know who I am? That became mm, yeah. a, a national story. I was in Detroit when that happened, and people in power sometimes forget that they are accountable, and yes. they are not, yes. not accountable to their peers. They, their number one accountability is to the people who live in their community and pay like those their taxes. Constituents, yes. Yeah, constituents. And their other responsibility is to be a good steward of our tax dollars. So, you know, when you go back to any of these issues, whether it's Governor Whitmer's response to COVID-19 or the floods over across mm-hmm. the state, which have been epic, or our shoreline in West Michigan, which is eroding unbelievably because our lake levels are so high. That's around the state. All the Great Lakes are way yeah, too high. Yeah. You know, however you feel, again, goes back to the difference between feelings and actions. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. may not feel good about an action that's taken, but you have ways to compare. Like, is this, well, when was the last time the lake levels were high? What was the action then? How did they spend the money then? Where did they get the money? Was it federal funds? And how were you good stewards of it? Or did it get wasted? Like in some cases in the Flint, in the Flint um, situation. So, you know, that's, that's what it always comes back down to. So regardless. Right, and that's that transparency that's needed. Always. Hold people accountable. Right. And what they tried to do in, secretly holding David Ludwig accountable for bad behavior and effectively wasting county money because he wasn't doing his job. And at one mm. point, Gerald Jones in this closed meeting, no, in the secretly recorded conversation between he and Jay Purcell as they rode together. Is that the to, car tapes? Yeah, the car right. tapes. At one point he said, um, he was very colorful too. He said something like his, Dad gum computer is nothing more than a giant paperweight. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> um, so, oh, goodness gracious. So, yeah, it turns out Virgie was actually putting together the $12 million annual budget for the county with some help from the former auditor who was just a stand-up guy, apparently. So <laughs> the, there were those kinds of issues is that he wasn't doing his job. And when he was there, he was doing stuff for the social clubs and veterans clubs that he was active in and printing out newsletters. And the county treasurer once picked up some paperwork off a print, a shared printer in that group. And it was like the newsletter that he was editing for one of these groups, (laughs) you know? So, so all of those things come to bear. And what ended up happening ultimately is the county wanted to sue Jay Purcell for illegally recording a closed meeting, and he countersued the commission on which he sat. So he effectively was suing himself. Wow. But he, he, yeah, (laughs) it gets convoluted, right? And this was a big deal because um, it led to, first of all, a challenge effectively to the Open Meetings Act and the Sunshine Laws in the state of Missouri, and this case went all the way up to the state Supreme Court. Um, Ultimately, nobody went to jail. 
nobody lost their jobs. Oh, God. <laughs> Jay, Jay Purcell sort of did because he wasn't reelected. Okay. Um, Gerald Jones remained in office. His sec- the secondary um, commissioner, the other commissioner, Mr. Box, remained in his job. They both got reelected. Um, and uh, David Ludwig got reelected, and he retired from the county with a, with a full pension. Oh, oh my gosh, this is incredible. It's incredible. And Mr. McBride's road was paved several years later. However, in the interim, um, because of the, the reporting we did with the great guidance of Bob Miller, we were able to show that, and even attorneys were saying, um, uh, head of the road commission, the unpaid head of the road commission, while he defended the county's drive to get roads paved, he felt having that easement signed and proofed, so to speak, in the manner, however legal that it was done behind the back of the property owner was not moral. And so they brought in an outside attorney to examine the documents and ultimately they um, threw out that easement and they had to start from scratch with Mr. McBride. Oh my gosh, what a nightmare. And, And a waste. Yes, all this wasted time and money. And ultimately, his road got paved. The last I checked, it was four or five years ago. The road did get paved. And by the way, they also had to hire an attorney who specialized in sex harassment to determine whether or not there were actionable, like, what risk did the county have? Because the two women in David Ludwig's office could have sued the county for sex harassment. I I was going to ask if they pursued anything. Virgie didn't want to. Virgie had worked at the county for so long. She this was her family and she felt that suing the county would have been wrong. Beth, who was much younger, I think she was the granddaughter of the former auditor. um, It was never. And again, people don't always believe this. It's never about the money. It's about the process and the policy. And so with another set of women, another set of circumstances, the county could have been liable for a judgment because they knew about the harassment. They did nothing to stop it. They did not impose, Um, that you can't, this is the other part we learned, you can't recall elected officials, county elected officials in the state of Missouri. That may have changed in the 12 years since I've been there, but back then there was no recourse. They couldn't fire him and they couldn't recall him. That's wild. And so when it came to a lawsuit, the consulting attorney who came in said that on a scale of one to 10, the level of hostile work environment that these two women experienced probably on a legal level would have been considered like a two out of 10 being the worst and one being the least. And Mm -hmm. so, so in fact, the County was potentially liable should the women sue and they needed to do a number of things. They needed to educate people. So I attended the first one or two sex harassment classes they had for County officials. (laughs) I made, I reported on them developing a sex harassment policy anti-sex harassment policy for the county. But, you know, ultimately, like I said, um, no one was sued other than the the Open Meetings Act where they kind of sued and countersued that basically came to nothing. The Missouri Press Association joined the lawsuit just out of a sheer concern for the Open Meetings Act. What yeah, a so story. Jay Purcell didn't have to go to jail. David Ludwig oh, for didn't the get... Recording, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, in the scheme of things, it's not the most corrupt government story you'll ever hear. It's just not. Yeah, but it's just, it has so many things. I, like I said, I am a big fan of 
the secret letters, the secret recordings and all of that. So I just find it so interesting that especially that he went in with one idea and then that meeting was completely something else. And if he didn't have the recording, you know, would this have gone maybe as far as it did? You know what I mean? Or also that you're that I think you said his name was Bob Miller. I think that's what you said. Called to talk to his source, but his source was the guy that was going in. To yeah. The meeting, right. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. incredible. That's incredible too. Yeah. <laughs> like a little, a coincidence of the whole thing. I remember. Yeah, I remember Bob and I looking at each other, going like, "Who would have ever guessed that would have happened?" Because he was the yeah. nicest guy. Like nobody had any clue. And the other thing that's to me that's interesting about all of this is that this was pre. I mean, this was two thousand seven, two thousand eight when this happened, and. I want to say Jay Purcell, I have, I might have to correct myself. I think Jay Purcell did know about the 2007 letter. He did because his wife typed it up. Oh my they, gosh. They didn't, they didn't want anybody, they didn't want anybody in the county to know about this. I mean, that alone, that alone is so shady. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to correct myself from earlier saying Jay Purcell didn't know. Jay did not know that. David Ludwig was being confronted. He did know about the 2007 incident. And I believe he's the reason that we got that letter because he was supposed to just make one copy and give it to the commissioner to have David sign. And the uh, Gerald Jones was going to keep custody of the signed letter. But I believe somehow Jay got a copy of it. And wow. somehow or another, somehow or another, we ended up with it. But but what was so interesting is that Bob Miller, my editor, and our publisher um, made the decision that we would publish all the audio. And so once we got the MP3 from the county, because it became public record, we published the audio from that closed session, and we published the mm. audio from the car trip from Cape Girardeau to uh, Jefferson City. Wow. And he didn't get in trouble for either, because the first one, you know, you're not supposed to be recording without people knowing, but then he did the second one. So that's interesting to me too, is that like he knew after the first one, the can of worms, but then he did, did the it car, anyway. he did the car ride one. The car, the car trip one happened first. Right, oh, right, right. Because okay. in, in private, Gerald Jones was trying to get Jay to vote certain ways. And, and the thing of it is, is that oh, there's a certain amount of, well, there's a certain amount of politics that go on, but certain, some of this is supposed to be transparent and it's supposed right. to happen during the meetings. So there's a, a legal record of it. And yes, anyone that's on the board, those, those sunshine laws, like you, you can't, you know, have an email to one per everything's got to be to everyone. And it's not like people in Cape County didn't know that because Kathy Swan, who was the former president of the state school board, got, uh, Food and she got fined five thousand dollars because she did a hub and spoke communication with members of the state school board, and that had just happened before I got there. So ev everyone in Cape County knew because the president of the state school board got fined five thousand dollars for perpetrating that. And she, uh, in fairness to Kathy, she did not understand what she was doing. You know, they train you, but. If you don't really understand the intricacies of that, and for you guys know what hub and spoke is, right? Uh, no. Okay. Hub and spoke is when outside of a meeting, I call Hillary and I say, hey, Hillary, there's going to be this amendment to our constitution or there's going to be 
Um, we're going to have this spending bill in front of us. I really need you to vote for it. And these are the reasons why. Then I call Jill. Then I call Tina. Then I call Bob, whatever. I call all these people. I'm the hub. I make all these individual communications with people to get their agreement that they will vote with me. Oh, and then at the meeting. Then it's a pretty, yeah, then it's a, one of those open and close, like, here's the motion. Here's the second. Everybody, you mm. know, who are yeah. the eyes? It's a unanimous vote. And that's why people should pay attention to unanimous votes, too, because where's the discussion? If right. they're going to tear down the old city hall, how did they come to that agreement? Does everybody think that's the right thing to do? The right way to spend your tax dollars? I'm a, I'm a nerd. About I, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of times people don't, especially now that, well, since meetings started being put on camera, a lot of people don't want to have those conversations in public because it upsets people. And then they start showing up at meetings or they stop you in the grocery store and say, I don't understand why you have this opinion. Yeah, yeah. Hey, but guess what? You're a public official. Yeah. <laughs> Can't do everything in the dark. Yeah. Thank God. And of course, things are not done in the dark because of journalists like you. I mean, it's amazing. These stories are amazing. Um I'm so glad that you were able to join us today and talk with us. The story is incredible. I'm going to go back and read so, so much about it. Maybe we'll cover it on one of our episodes of The Muck. It yes. sounds like a really good episode, we, we, a story we could cover. Well, we're going to put um, on our website, um, we always put like our show notes. So I was going to put mm -hmm. uh, these, I'll put your, these PDFs. I can link them to mm -hmm. uh, our blog post so that people can read through them. And yeah. uh, if you have that audio, you can send it to me and I can post that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it. I, I have to dig it up. Like I said, I've got several computers here and lots of hard drives, so I have to find it. But <laughs> um, I appreciate that you guys are willing to talk to me about this. And I'm sorry that at the end I realized like some of the stuff has been it's been so long. Even rereading the stories before I talked to you, it, it was like, wow, I forgot I did all this reporting. You know? <laughs> well, it's this great, great story, and I think our listeners will love it. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for letting me go on and on. <laughs> oh, we love it. Are you kidding me? It's like it's like what we live for. Are you kidding? Yes. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. And you guys have a great day, a safe day. Thank you. You too. You too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. If you want to learn more about this week's guest, please follow the episode notes on our blog at themuckpodcast.fireside.fm. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Muck Podcast. To support The Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level. Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for The Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Dougherty. <laughs>